watch and discuss the horrific, the obscure, and the flat-out strange from the other side of cinema. I'm Mark Dickerson. And I'm Jeremy Fink. And this is part three in our series, Cinema Slackers, where we take a psychedelic trip through some of cinema's greatest wanderers and drifters. Kick back, roll one up, and listen in. Today we'll be discussing the 1994 film Clerks, written and directed and co-produced by Kevin Smith, starring Brian O'Halloran and Jeff Anderson. Title does not dictate behavior. What? If title dictated my behavior as a clerk serving the public, I wouldn't be allowed to spit water at that guy. But I did. So my point is that people dictate their own behavior. Even though I work in a video store, I choose to go rent movies at Big Choice. Agreed? You are a danger to both the dead and the living. I like to think I'm a master of my own destiny. Please get the hell out of here. I know I'm your hero. It follows a day in the life of our main character, Dante, and his best friend, Randall, as they work at... Well, Dante works at a convenience store, and Randall works at a video store, and they kind of get into the shenanigans of everyday suburban life, I believe, in New Jersey. Um, this was kind of a pretty important film at the time. It was part of the, the Sundance movement, um, it got picked up by Miramax, which was a big deal, and Kevin Smith and his friends shot this film for a little bit under $30,000 using the convenience store where Smith worked in real life. Mm-hmm. And this is another day in the life, much like the film we just talked about, Slacker. Mm-hmm. And Slacker uh, had a big influence on Kevin Smith. He said that it was that movie that made him want to make this movie and to be a director in general. Uh, so, as we said last time, uh, rarely do we go from one film so easily into the next but i think uh this one's pretty appropriate for the, the one we just watched um, yeah they kind of they kind of pair together perfectly mm-hmm. um very different obviously. very different but you yeah. can you can really see a through line which is nice yeah. it, it's exciting i think um because you know we do different kinds of series on this show so sometimes there's a clear a to b but sometimes it'll be totally removed it'll just be kind of in the same genre or mm-hmm. same ideology but this the, these two films being slacker and clerks um like you mentioned, Mark, literally Clerks got made because Kevin Smith was from New Jersey and he would go to the Angelica Film Center on Houston Street in Manhattan, which if you're ever in Manhattan and get the chance, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie theater. Would highly recommend going there. Um, and they still, to this day, show a lot of art house movies, a lot of foreign films. So Kevin Smith is a budding cinephile, would find his way there and happen to come across Slacker. And it really influenced the way he thought about filmmaking and I think just gave him the confidence, which is such a big thing for young filmmakers. It gave him the confidence to just say, hey, you know, that looks very reasonable. I think I could go out and do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, much like Slacker, it's it has has that um, notoriety for being uh, a lot of people look at this as, you know, this is the way people talk. This is the way people interact and things like that. And again, like I said about Slacker, I feel like when you actually go back and rewatch these movies, you maybe it doesn't ring completely true, but um, just something about the way that the, uh, these people interact. I mean, it, it feels genuine. It feels like these people are friends in real life and it has that vibe of just like hanging out with people. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it, both of these movies are similar in that way for sure. And as we said, they are both a day in the life. Uh, this one is seen through the eyes of a couple of main characters. Uh, the main, main one is Dante who works at the convenience store. Named after Dante's Inferno. Right, which there's, yeah. yeah, there are sort of parallels, I guess. That, kind of parallels. Yeah, I mean, that was also a, an influence, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> to, to me, it um, always kind of felt like someone learned about Dante's Inferno, but didn't mm-hmm. necessarily read it. Yeah, and it was like, almost like decided yeah. that they like the, they like the vibe and they like the idea. Yeah, uh, but not, yeah. but not in like a stupid way. It was it was clever. It just I was I was trying to figure out exactly mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. how, but yeah, I didn't look too much into that. I think mm-hmm. some of the titles are influenced by it. Um, yeah, definitely. Or de- yeah, derived from it. Um, so yeah, Dante, he's the main character, and he's sort of an everyman um, because we've all had jobs like that. <laughs> yeah, we've all had days like all been that. There. I would say, like where you you know you maybe you weren't supposed to be there, as he says, I wasn't supposed to be there today. Uh, so he's the main guy, and his friend Randall, who we actually don't meet until a little bit later on. Uh, he works at a video store, which is basically right next to uh, the convenience store. Um, and as I was telling Jeremy, like I always, <laughs> I always feel like they work at the same store because Randall's always at the convenience store. He's uh, he's hardly ever at his own store, which is kind of funny. Um, and he could not care less about that store. And actually, one of the funniest parts to me is when he's uh, he's he tells Dante, "I'm going to go to the the video store." Uh, and he's talking about a different one. He's like, "What?" He's like, "You work in a video store. Why don't you just?" He's like, "Yeah, but, but our store sucks. We don't have any yeah. good, you know, good stuff." So I thought that was pretty funny. Well, Randall's um, Randall's a great character because he's kind of, yeah. uh, he's kind of an absurdist a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. he he seems to not really have any regard for the conventions of being a normal, decent human being. You know, oh, he, he kind of, yeah. he, he, he follows his whims. He has no problem. There's one scene where he spits on a customer just to prove a point. Um, he, he, he's kind of, he reminds me, I'm, I'm a big f- fan of the artist Marcel Duchamp, who is most famous for putting a toilet in an art gallery back in the early 20th century. <laughs> and I think that Randall kind of is that kind of character where, you know, he, provocateur he he's a provocateur. He's not, he's not a stupid guy. He's, a, you know, he's smart. Uh, he's, he's definitely a little flighty. Uh, to say the least, but he kind of just does things to make his point and illustrate his ideas in mm-hmm. a way that sometimes gets it across. Oftentimes it gets missed, but almost all of the time is offensive or destructive in some way. Well, there's that really famous scene where he's um, the mother and daughter come into, <laughs> very young daughter come into the the video store and he's just on the phone rattling off uh, names of porno films and just goes on and on uh so stuff like he just does stuff like that and that you know he's very entertaining character and everyone also kind of has a friend like like him i feel like you know i mean he just has that familiar familiarity to him um and uh, really makes the movie work i think just the chemistry between the two of them uh and also you know as, as a moment in time as a photograph of the time you, you can't get more early 90s than no hanging out at a convenience store yeah. and a, a video store, which, you know, remember those? Yeah. yeah so, right. I mean, um, so those two, the occupations are in and just the way they, they interact with each other is just very much uh, like Slack or just a snapshot of that time. Yeah. Well, and I think that, I think that Clerks might be the quintessential nineties movies. It has um, to pe- be, yeah. People might argue that, but I just can't think because there are other movies that are, were much more famous, you know, like the Quentin Tarantino movies, some of the Robert Rodriguez stuff, Steven Soderbergh. Mm-hmm. But I think that ultimately, but like, as far as is what people were actually doing at that time, yeah, like, this just get, embodies it. Um, where and, they were, and yeah, yeah, and and this is interesting because this Kevin Smith is part of what now gets referred to as the Sundance generation of filmmakers, but also uh, was referred to as the video store generation. So it was really the first group right. of filmmakers. A lot of them didn't go to film school, but they just, worked at video stores or just yeah. spent their entire lives. Quentin in and out Tarantino. of video stores, yeah. Quentin Tarantino is um, a really famous one for that, yeah. Yeah. He used to work at a video store as well. And you can really see it in, in the the pop culture references, the discussions that they were having. You know, it felt like the kind of thing, you know, you go and you see Star Wars for the 10 billionth time, 
and you talk about it with your friends and you get to the point where because it's so accessible and it's on video, you don't even have to just talk about the movie anymore. You can start coming up with these wacky fan theories as people do now, which I don't know is something that would have necessarily been happening before yeah. video stores because people would only see it in a movie theater. There, there wasn't an online community. You could talk about it with your friends, but you weren't rewatching it necessarily as many mm -hmm. times. You would go and see a movie. You would enjoy it. And then, you know, you'd be able to think about it, but depending on who saw it, there wasn't this guarantee that anyone could just go pick it up at any time. Right. Um, Conversations you would have online now, you would have back then just hanging around at a movie store, a convenience store, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, Which um, is definitely a nostalgic thing. I mean, it's weird because uh, for me, you know, the 90s, like I was, a, I was a little kid in the 90s. So a lot of my childhood memories are going and getting videotapes at the store, but and I kind of am sad I didn't get to experience video stores as a young adult because it, it looked really interesting. It was just a little bit before my time, but I yeah. think it's nostalgic for a lot of people, and I think that's one of the reasons maybe that Clerks has kind of kept itself in the cultural zeitgeist for so long. Mm -hmm. um, not, I mean, it's it's a great movie. It's a lot of fun. I'm not saying that it shouldn't, but I'm saying that a big part of it is it just so embodies a certain moment that very shortly after that moment kind of died. Yeah. And Kevin Smith was a, uh, you know, very much in, he, you know, when you think of Kevin Smith, you do think of the early nineties cause you had this movie and you had the next film that he made mall rats, which mm -hmm. is another, uh, obviously like a mainstay, like a haven for, mm -hmm. uh, the youth in the nineties hanging out at the mall. Um, so that, that was his next movie after this. So, um, going back to clerks, um, do, I guess you want to do a little rundown of, again, not much plot here, but do you want to just kind of discuss it, I guess, what goes on a little bit? Yeah, so our main character, Dante, is in a situation where, A, he's working at this convenience store, but B, he has two girlfriends, kind of two girlfriends. Mm -hmm. One is named Veronica, who seems to really care about him. She's encouraging him to go to school and do something with his life. The other is actually an ex-girlfriend named Caitlin, who he's still kind of obsessed with and trying to find a way to get back together with her, but he finds out... Uh, partway through the movie that she is engaged to, as they joke, an Asian design major who yeah. kind of gets referenced throughout the film, but we never actually get to see. <laughs> um, so that's that's kind of his big conflict is who will he end up with. But it's also what is he doing with his life? Can he put his foot down? Um, Mark, As Mark mentioned, he wasn't even supposed to be working that day. There's this really great opening shot of the film, which kind of plays. There, there's this trope in a lot of... Uh, kind of I, I found lower budget movies where it'll open with the main character waking up and a lot of the time it's kind of the most dull played out way that you can start a movie you know yeah. a lot of good writers you will talk about yeah, yeah like start your movie when things are already happening and starting mm -hmm. with a character waking up not to put anyone down if you can do it in an interesting way do it um, I will say like 90% at least of the films from uh, when I was in film school started out that way. Someone waking up. It, yeah. it was like a big pet peeve of mine. Yeah. yeah so, but it uh, works out. It works. It here. works here. And yeah. what's beautiful here is that it's him waking up, but it, it's him waking up in a very peculiar situation where he's uh, falling out of a closet. You're not exactly sure why he's sleeping there. You oh, don't really get that's this. That's a great. Yeah, yeah. Great, uh, it's actually kind of like uh, Up in Smoke a little bit where you, you don't even yeah, know where you, don't, you are. You don't know where he is, on. yeah, and, and that's actually a great parallel because we have the shot in Up in Smoke with the couch. Um, mm -hmm. but, kids, yeah. yeah, and what I love about this shot, though, is, and, and actually kind of the timing works out nicely because, as we mentioned, there is the Dante's Inferno kind of referencing throughout, and the opening line of Dante's Inferno, I'm not going to get it verbatim, but it's something like, I found myself off the good path and lost in a wood, and, and in my mind, that opening shot is just the epitome of someone who is find, finds themselves just off of the good path lost. Yeah. Um, so kind of right there you get it, and then it's his journey throughout this day. 
Um, and he's kind of just trying to, you know, have a good time, get out of work, find the good things in life. Um, and it's so clear that he's miserable in this job, but at the same time, people keep telling him options and ways he can improve his situation, but he seems to really resist. And that's his struggle. And, and to me, I think that, so because there's this kind of thing that Mark and I were talking about with Kevin Smith, and Kevin Smith is fills a pretty interesting place in contemporary cinema because he kind of blew up really, really fast with this movie. You know, then he did Mallrats, uh, Chasing Amy, mm -hmm. Clerks 2, like Dogma. Dogma. Yeah. He, he had a, a pretty good run of movies. But then there seemed to be this thing somewhere in the late 2000s, maybe even early, 2010, early 2010s, where people started to really kind of reject Kevin Smith. Yeah. Um, he and became like a dirty word. Yeah, he, be he became like a, a kind of pariah. Um, I think even he himself kind of got lost in... Yeah. Because once he made, you know, once he got to Jay and Simon Bob Strike Back, it was almost like he didn't really know what, like, to, where's what else this going? to do. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like, what, what you know, I've created this universe almost, the, the View Askewiverse, as it's called, because uh, that's his production company, View Askew. Uh, and, you know, he has... So characters from, from Clerks will show up in other movies and, and mall rats and things like that. So he kind of has his own little world that he's created, which is really cool. Um, but you do get to a certain point where it's like, okay, now what else can I do? Yeah. And I think, I think what you're referring to is like, he got to that point and people weren't as, they weren't responding as, as well to his movies at that point. Yeah. Right? And, and in yeah. my, in my opinion, um, one of the reasons, cause it, it seems like people rejected some of the other movies, but Clerks is always the one that, held up yeah and the reason in my opinion is in rewatching this movie and having seen some of his other movies i think that the main focus the main thing that he was working through in this is character to character relationships and i think the comedy actually came in it was secondary to these relationships the um yeah. originally so kevin smith was a huge david lynch fan this is just a fun fact i learned and uh there, there's the one part actually where jay in this movie as in jay and silent bob where the drug dealers who hang out by the wall Jay has this one line where he says, I'll fuck anything that moves, um, yeah, which is directly from the movie Blue Velvet. Um, so you, you kind of get that Kevin... And so originally I heard an interview with Kevin Smith where he said that Clerks was supposed to be this kind of dark movie where it was like a mystery where there's this guy working in a convenience store and it's all the strange, surreal, dreamlike figures who he meets. But then he started writing and very quickly realized that, you know, the way he was creating it, it was a lot more geared towards a comedic setting and he kind of leaned into that. But I think that idea of starting with someone really working through some real problems is what gives this movie such heart and lets it hold up because there are a lot of really funny jokes in this movie. Like, there are some laugh-out-loud hysterical yeah. moments. But ultimately, I think, for me, the reason I would I come back to it is because I love the characters and as, you know, a young person, I can understand what people in their 20s are going through when they're unsure and wandering and i think maybe in some of the later kevin smith movies where things lost got lost that. is it became more about the joke it became more about mm -hmm. just trying to make something really funny and not yeah. about these like like the the, the character storylines and the character struggles would become second and only be used as a conduit to tell jokes whereas in this movie the the jokes are a way of getting to something more interesting yeah i think you nailed it when you said that this movie has a heart to it that i think I would say that his other films really don't. Um, I mean, there there is you know like Chasing Amy is is a has some of that and some of the other other films do. But I think mm -hmm. this film um, maybe just because of how young he was and how mm -hmm. how much he wanted to be a filmmaker and how genuine all of it was. Something about it just um, just really works. And uh, I think you can go back to this movie and and enjoy it. Um, 
So just to go into, because I think the behind the scenes for this one's very interesting because of how low budget it is uh, and what went into making it. So just to go into that a little bit. Uh, so Kevin Smith, as we said, he worked at the store where they shot the film, the convenience store, and they shot for 21 straight nights. And this kind of blew me away, this uh, schedule. This this just shows you, what, you know, when you're young, you can do anything. You know what I mean? If you have that drive you, mm -hmm. and that motivation. So they would, they would, um, they started at 6 a.m. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He would start his shift at 6 a.m. Uh, at the convenience store, Kevin Smith. And then he would finish at 11 p.m., which is already crazy. <laughs> That's a lot, no. very long time to be working. Uh, then they would shoot. So for, they, after they closed the store, they would shoot until 4 a.m. Um, and after which he would grab a couple hours of sleep <laughs> before he would get get ready to go back to the store and do it all again. So that is pretty crazy uh, to do that for 21 straight nights. Uh, is pretty insane. I don't know. I'm sure they had a break in there somewhere, but still, um, hardly though. Just, yeah, a break. Just, a break. You not not a, not a break of days though. A break of hours. It's not yeah. like a. And so I guess what happened was, you know, he worked at the store and he probably just approached the the owners or the managers and said, "Hey, can I kind of use this to shoot?" And they were probably like, "Yeah, as long as it's not not when the store is open," which you know, convenience stores open very long hours. So. Um, and this is actually very interesting because it actually lends itself to the plot mm -hmm. of the film because as they're only allowed to shoot when uh, the store was closed, they couldn't use the actual exterior of the building with the, you know, with the open windows and the doors and everything. The shutters always had to be closed. So he actually made that a part of the story where they go and uh, where, when he shows up to work, he... Uh, the shutters are stuck and he can't get them open. And it's kind of like an ongoing gag through the whole movie that these shutters are down. So I thought that was a very uh, creative way to deal with that. And um, so that's just one example of, of how he used his, you know, what was going on in his life at that time to make this movie, mm -hmm. um, which I, and when I said, like, you know, when you're young and, and you're motivated, you want to be a filmmaker, you can do stuff like that. You, you can go on no, almost to no sleep at all and just, you know try to make something and i think that's what he was trying to do here um so it was shot for a total of around twenty seven twenty seven thousand uh, dollars which is you know it's not not, too not a lot of money it's not a lot of money especially not back then if you're shooting yeah. on film probably it, half yeah, of that gotta, went to just developing that and into it as well cutting. Yeah. right um so and then so upon its release um it did receive pretty good reviews and it grossed over three million uh in theaters actually and it really did kind of launch smith's career from there um so and also a, a big factor of of you know when people think of this film they think of okay it's a black and white film and you wonder if he did this for artistic choice or whatever uh and maybe he did but the budget was definitely a big part of that. Mm -hmm. They shot in black and white uh, because they didn't want to have to worry about with lighting, you know, making sure everything looked perfect and the color temperatures and things like that. So they just decided to shoot it very simple, black and white, uh, which really works for it because it has that timeless feel to it, even though it is set in the 90s. Um, it is so like universal with the relationships and things like that. So I think it actually really works with the black and white. What do you think about that, though? Yeah, I think I think it's just so so of its moment. You know, it's like the, the the fact that it's in black and white just makes so much sense because it is. Uh, it's almost like it really is like a snapshot. Yeah, like 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 yeah. I, I like I can't even imagine this movie in color. To be mm -hmm. frank, it's just it's just so tied to it, and I you know it might have been a budgetary thing, it might have been a creative decision, um, but either way, I think it's just so it works. Yeah, because it, it. it just it feels like I, I remember. I mean, my dad is a photographer. I think I've mentioned that before on this show. Mm -hmm. 
And I remember what his photographs would look like, you know, from the early 90s based on the film stocks that were around. And, mm-hmm. you know, this this movie just feels like that. These black and white little yeah. snapshots, you know, either inside the store using that really kind of artificial weird lighting or outside using just natural light with probably no diffusion, no anything. Mm-hmm. It, it, ju- it just really has that. And the funny thing is now I, I think Kevin Smith has something to do with this. I think that Sofia Coppola had a lot to do with it. Now people will spend a lot of money to try to give things that snapshot feel, you know, because it's, it's hard now with digital, digital just eats up light and dark and makes it contrasty and crazy. And it's, it's like hard to get the look that Kevin Smith got. So, so it's kind of almost funny that these low budget, you know, like the Virgin, I mean, not the the Virgin Suicides was so low budget, but like Clark's Virgin Suicides, these movies that had these very kind of hip flowy, you know, photographs people now are trying to spend a lot of money to get in much bigger budget movies and it's difficult but these young artists just because of the technologies they were using at the time combined with their personal aesthetics and interests were able to get this beautiful beautiful stuff shot cheaply mm-hmm. yeah um but it does add to the overall film i would say so it kind of worked out for him. <laughs> yeah um so sometimes those budget things do work out i you know that's one of the things i want to talk about i feel like this film and and its budget are just like almost one thing to me. It's, it's the budget is such a big part of the overall film and how it turned out. Uh, it kind of makes it what it is, you know? So I think his being resourceful actually added to the film in a lot of different ways, mm-hmm. you know, down to, Hey, I'm going to use where I work as the main location. Yeah. You know, that's, that's genius in a way because yeah. it hadn't really been done at that point. It's you know? mariachi filmmaking as Robert exactly. Rodriguez would call it. Yeah, um, exactly. What's interesting too is there's one scene which is one of my favorite plot lines where um, there's a classmate, a former classmate of theirs who has passed away because I think it's a brain aneurysm and there, there's a scene where you see them walking into a funeral home to go to the wake and then it cuts and says five minutes later and then they come running out and something has gone horribly wrong. And what's interesting is that's actually considered a lost scene, not because they shot it at the time and lost it, but because it was written into the script, but it was too expensive to shoot. And they actually went back in um, because there was Clerks, the animated series years later, and they actually um, animated this lost scene. I don't know if you've seen this, Mark. Mm -hmm. Um, I've heard about it. Yeah, I actually just watched it this morning before we were talking about this. And it's a pretty good scene. Like, Mm -hmm. it's actually a very funny, well-written scene. There's a whole thing about... You know, someone, uh, Randall, dropping his car keys into the coffin. It, it's a whole thing. Um, mm. But I kind of loved, because of that budgetary limitation, that they couldn't do this scene. And it was just, I always wondered. And, and that mystery, I thought, was really beautiful. Um, but at the same time, one thing I want to talk about. So I, I listened to this other podcast, and I'll have to pull that up at the end. Maybe we can link to it somewhere. Um, but it's, it's all about film noir movie. And they were talking about this movie, Detour which is actually what Richard Linklater's, to connect it, Richard Linklater's production company is called Detour Film. So Detour is directed by this guy named Edward Gielmer. It's from 1945, and it was considered like a micro-budget noir. It was done, back then there were the studios, and this it was done with what was considered a poverty row studio. And one thing that they were saying on this podcast is that they thought it was almost detrimental to discuss that film as micro-budget because they felt it didn't give it enough credit for being what it was. Um, which is something that is an interesting idea because with film, we so often talk about the money. We talk about what it was made for, how that ties in. But what's interesting is, you know, you wouldn't talk about how much money a writer spent on paper and ink. You wouldn't talk about how much money a painter spent on paint. 
it would just be about what the final product is kind of regardless of that. So what I'd like to talk about with Clerks is how good the writing is. Um, and that that's kind of something that's separate separate from budget or anything else because this movie is is just really beautifully constructed the way that you know for the it, it's it's hard I don't, for people who have written anything that's long form know how difficult it is people who haven't but plan to try you know it's a lot of work so go in with a good attitude but be prepared to fight because it's a struggle but filling up an hour and a half of screen time or a novel connecting things is really difficult you can have a lot of great scenes a lot of great chapters and they can be beautiful in their own right but finding ways to tie them all together is really difficult and then to actually have something more meaningful in a way that your main character or characters can grow in some way or learn something that isn't too on the nose and obvious but isn't too abstract it's really really difficult and I thought that the way that this script was written like every little thing that popped up somehow became tied together um, with maybe the exception of the the Star Wars scene where they're talking about, you know, mm-hmm. all the all the contractors who would have died on the Death Star <laughs> as it yeah. was being built. Um, but that actually, interestingly enough, fun fact, is the original ending to Clerks was that someone would come in and oh, shoot yeah. Dante. I like wanted it, to talk about yeah, that. They, they were, and, and so that would have actually been how it tied in because in the story about... Uh, the people on the Death Star, this this other guy comes in and says that he's had a similar experience with his friend, and his friend ended up dying because of a mob hit. So originally, even that was supposed to tie together. And there's so many little beats in this room, from the guy falling asleep in the bathroom to the you know the ongoing joke about shoe polish. Like there's so many things that <laughs> yeah, run all the way through in a really beautiful, yeah. intricate, delicate way. That's so for, hard to do for a movie that's considered to have almost no plot at all mm-hmm. um you're right i think there is a lot of little details and a lot of things that tie into each other as you watch it so it's not just like vignettes like it actually all kind of works mm-hmm. together in a way um and since you brought it up i do want to talk about that alternate ending because i think it's very interesting it's kind of one of those notorious alternate endings uh much like the one for uh, little shop of horrors which i do want to talk about when we get to that movie because that that's a, a huge one yeah. but this one um so the original ending that Kevin Smith had, and even up until they were doing uh, test screenings, uh, was that Dante gets shot by a, uh, someone comes in and robs the store and shoots him and takes cigarettes, which actually does tie into to a scene that happened earlier with cigarettes. Um, so and it's while it's very dark and almost doesn't make sense for a film like this, I can see where he was going with it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's one of those things that when you're writing a movie, like, like you said, I mean, it's a long process to write something. And I think when he was writing it, it probably made a lot of sense to end it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and he since said that he, the reason that it ended that way is because he didn't know how to end movies back then. Yeah. Well, I'm <laughs> not sure. was, a lot of people not, it's hard to end because a movie. It, was, it is hard to end movies, but because it was his first movie, it's like, yeah, I just didn't know how to end it. But I think, I think he's kind of downplaying it a little bit. I think it actually makes more sense than, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like it, 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 it makes, it's almost like uh, a very ironic ending. It's just very, um, you know, because I don't know, it, to me, it just makes a certain sort of sense. And uh, because it, it kind of emphasizes the randomness of life and, yeah, you know, he wasn't even supposed to be there that day and stuff like that. But, you know, considering the movie is a comedy yeah. and uh, I think it was probably a good move to get rid of it, but yeah. I think it's very interesting to look at it. It's also interesting that Miramax was actually behind him for that mm-hmm. uh, because they are notorious for kind of making lots of cuts to Harvey movies. scissor hands. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, now he's probably noticed something else. No, yeah, it's something else <laughs> now, but something else with hands, but back right. then it was Harvey yeah, scissor back hands. Back then it was. Yeah. So they, they were pretty notorious for that. And the fact that they were okay with him leaving it in, 
uh, well, leaving it up to him. I'm sure they yeah. actually wanted it out, but uh, but he kind of last minute. I, I, I don't know if someone convinced him or what happened, but he kind of just decided to take it out. And, you know, it, it makes a big impact on the rest of the, cause yeah. now you look at the film and it's very lighthearted and you don't really think about that. So I thought that was a, uh, interesting. I think you can still see it on the DVD though. Um, yeah. The Blu-ray, they, they have that on there. Yeah. Well, and um, I think, I think it's an interesting ending because that kind of would bring it into that really Lynchian realm that, um, almost more surreal. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, it, it is kind of a really, um, postmodern ending, like, which is, you know, I think that the sentimentality of this is maybe why it's held up because we've seen this kind of paradigm shift in popular culture from this very Seinfeld, you know, postmodern, cold, which I mean, I love Seinfeld, but, you know, there was this kind of, in the 90s, uh, there was this very kind of cold, um, ironic sensibility that in the 2000s in like a post 9-11 world, people said, you know, it's kind of nice when people don't hate each other and things actually are kind of, mm-hmm. but, but I do think that it is a really interesting postmodern, the idea that this character could go through everything, have his kind of aha moment and see what he needs to do to grow as a, as a person and then get shot, I think is a kind of fantastic, mm-hmm. awful ending, you know, like yeah, aw- yeah. awful, not in that it's bad to sit awful and that it would just be so depressing. Um, yeah, but really down, interesting, down ending, kind, but, kind yeah, of interesting, the, the anti, anti Hollywood, anti movie, which is maybe yeah. why I could imagine you know, executives getting behind that ending is that what they're selling, you know, the product they're selling here is the anti-Hollywood movie. And what's more of an anti-Hollywood ending than everyone learned? You know, that would be like at, at the end of It's a Wonderful Life if well, a samurai came in and hacked <laughs> Jimmy Stewart to pieces. It would be like, you know, there'd be no point to all of that. <laughs> well, something to get people talking for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, maybe that's what they were thinking. Because um, they, they knew they had something on their hands. They had to know that. Um, yeah. So they were probably like, oh, this will get people, you know, talking about it anymore. It'll stir but, the pot. Yeah. So, but I'm. But the way it ends now is it, it almost kind of just abruptly ends, and I kind of like that because yeah. uh, I think it actually probably even works better than the other ending because it's it's almost like is this like because that's you know sometimes days end like that where it's just like mm-hmm. you know now it's over you yeah, know it's we, over yeah we, this is what happened and now it's and, it's and now we're on we're what? on to the next day you know? and one so thing that was strange to me and have you ever heard of the Ma- Mandela effect. Mark? Yes, I have. Yeah, I think we actually might have talked about. We it might before, have talked yeah. about it before, but and and I'm not going to get into the uh, the entomology of it. But the the Mandela effect is basically when we remember certain things differently than they actually happened. Yeah. Um, so, for example, um, what's, a, what's a good example? Like the Bernstein Bears. Yes, were actually I was bring that up. They, they were. I believe the name was the Berenstein Bears. Right, that's what it is. It was. The Barons? No, wait, hold on. Let me. The Baron. It's the Baron. <laughs> I have to think about it because it's a, so. The, the, the Bern. The Bernstein Bears. The actual name is the Baron Stain Bears. The spelled B E R E N S T S T A I N. Actual name. But everyone but... remembers it. It's the Bernstein Bears. And so this movie, I think, kind of Mandela affected me because there were things that, in my mind, I remembered them definitely playing yeah. a certain way. Like for example, the the relationship situation you know, with the, the two women, is kind of never really resolved. No. Like, like he has this big, this, this argument where uh, Veronica is, like, kicking him while he's on the ground, telling him what a shit he is, and then she just leaves. And then he sees Randall again, and the movie's over. And in my mind, it was always, like, this happy ending where they <laughs> resolved it. And it's not. She just it's leaves. Not at all. She just yeah. leaves. Which is, and to me, and that's so interesting because... It is... You, like 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 and, and I saw so I'm listening to these uh, lectures by David Mamet online right now and one thing he's talking about nice. is how in in tragedy you know um a, you know a tragic a sad ending befalls our hero because he's chasing after something he, he gave the example of Wiley e. Coyote 
You know, it's like it's like he's always chasing after something, but at the end of the day, it's it's always going to end poorly. Whereas drama is you look into something and you see how life goes for a little bit. And I think that even though this is a comedy, I think it could also be considered a drama because that's basically what it is. We're looking yeah. in on this character's life. He kind of maybe gets a little better in terms mm-hmm. of working on himself. But, you know, he's going to go back the next day. It's, he's you know, still gonna hate his job he's still, still gonna, gonna hate his job he, he might be starting to think about it and maybe three months down the line he quits yeah. his job but he's not gonna quit his job the next day he might not even quit his job that year and as i mean i haven't mm. seen it all the way through honestly um but i believe clerks 2 opens up with them working at the exact same convenience store like years later i would have to rewatch it yeah but yeah I, I think it does <laughs> and, and i think there, there is a certain truth which is interesting too i, I think about it all the time with uh, like filmmake particularly young filmmakers um, because they're making movies and when you have an ending like that where it's kind of like, you know, maybe it's not going to get better. But at the same time, the person who's writing this is working so hard to do what he wants with his mm-hmm. life is is kind of an interesting because maybe, you know, I mean, I've heard before that we write our fears. So maybe his fear, Kevin Smith's fear being, not Dante's, well, also Dante's is that, you know, he's going to just be caught in this endless cycle for the rest of his life. And, yeah. you know, things might get a little better. He might kind of realize that he needs to change, but he won't be able to. But he might mm-hmm. be able to just find joy, which is, is beautiful on the one hand, because it does seem by the end of the day, Dante does kind of find a little bit of joy in his situation. But on the other hand, it's like, well, when's he going to... Mm-hmm. take it like, take, take control yeah take the next step well that that last conversation that randall and dante have is is actually really good i think it actually mm-hmm. sums up the film in a way when they're uh it's a la- basically the last scene of the movie where it's just they're kind of sitting there talking and don or randall's kind of giving the speech almost where uh he says in effect he says if well actually he, he says for verbatim if we're so advanced what are we doing here and i think that kind mm-hmm. of like you know what i mean because it's there's a certain type of person that you know they're in these jobs but they they're always like in their head they're like i'm better than this what yeah. am i doing here you know these people are below me they kind of look down on the yeah. customers and all that or they're impatient and, and yeah know? and they're impatient they're yeah. you know but like what are they waiting for i mean if they if they're not going to make a change now when are they going to do it and yeah it can only it can only come from themselves so mm-hmm. it's almost like uh randall is kind of wise in that way that he can look outside himself and, and see that and uh, it's it's a very interesting way to to end it because all the conversations you have in the film, uh, it never gets as deep as that last one. I, I think it's pretty fitting that it is like the last scene in the movie. Yeah. Um, so in a way, it does it does have its own ending. Yeah. Um, and, and like you said, it's it's more of a slice of life. It's a know. slice of life. Yeah. It's a, it's a comedy, but it's also that. So. And and, and I think sense. that's one of the things that why it holds up so well is mm-hmm. in a lot of popular comedy, they feel the need to tell the whole story. You know, they feel the need yeah. to resolve it and have, have the hugs and kisses up. at the end. Yeah. And this one, it's like life goes on. But because of that, mm-hmm. the jokes almost seem funnier because it's like, oh, these funny people are just going to keep being funny. They'll never yeah. stop. It's like not that, you know, they don't fall in love and then just go live happily ever after. The next yeah. day is going to be shitty, but it's also going to be <laughs> funny. It's going to be entertaining. Unlike, you know, you start playing out their scenarios in your own mind past that. Mm-hmm. I think that it is to get back to like the, the real ideas at the core of this, because I do think that the, surprisingly or maybe not surprisingly, but, you know, for the genre, surprisingly, this is a movie with a lot going on in terms of the, the emotional um, uh, platform, you know? And and I think that it's something that, especially with young people, is Randall, the character, is 22 years old in this movie, um, which I think is, is one of the, the beautiful things about the slacker genre, that we, we've now kind of seen a little bit more, it's kind of been popularized in culture, particularly with shows like 
girls, broad city, you know, things like that that explore the experience of people freshly out of college or freshly into the working world. Um, and it's, it's kind of this fear that you had your chance to set yourself up in a, in a way that would bring your life in the right direction, but maybe things haven't gone exactly how you wanted them to, and now what? And, and I think that this movie, rather than having people just sitting around dwelling on the now what, it kind of uses that the show don't tell idea really well, where through their actions, through you know through the frustrations, through the blowing off work, you can see the fear of the now what. And I think it also is a film that has a lot of respect for its characters because yeah. there aren't really stupid people in this movie. You know, like, like, like there, there's some dated jokes where maybe it would come across now as someone who's a little bit lewd or, you know, uneducated. But, but there's also a lot of pretty frank, interesting discussion yeah. going on. Um, you know, it's there's really interesting that you say show don't tell in a movie that's so filled with dialogue. It's filled with I dialogue. Think, I think you're right, though. Yeah. No, I think you're right. Um, it's not, not on the always, nose. It's not, you know, and it's not talking always about the plot or any or story yeah. or anything like that. Sometimes it's just character stuff, you know, which is kind of cool. Well, and that's something I think, at least in my philosophy of filmmaking, often gets misconstrued um, because, like, I, personally, like, I love dialogue. I think dialogue is one of the coolest things. And, it can be used very well, yeah. Yeah, and I think that, like, the, the, this idea of show, don't tell often gets misconstrued, meaning don't have people talk about things, you know, find a visual to do it, which, of course, is amazing when you can do that. But I think it also means, you know, you think about, like, the opening scene to Reservoir Dogs, and that's eight minutes of people talking, and, but you're not really getting any important... You don't know who these people are. You don't know what yeah. their problems are. All uh -huh. they're, they're just kind of shooting the shit, but it's because of that... Not being too on the nose. Yeah, but because of that, you're getting all these beautiful, rich character details, and that mm -hmm. is showing. You know, it, mm -hmm. it, it's it, and it, and I think it's not telling because telling would be how so many movies open it up. You open it, and they're planning their heist. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think for this, it would be you know you open the movie up, and they're sitting around at the counter, and Dante is saying, "Oh my God, I don't know." where my life is going to go. But instead, mm -hmm. the first 20 minutes of the movie is mostly talking about blowjobs, you know? And it's, <laughs> right. it's like, like and, and to me, that is showing because mm -hmm. it's showing, you know, their their attitudes on, you know, like they're so in their moment that they're not even realizing these bigger problems that they're trying to hash out. Um, well, Silent, Silent Bob certainly doesn't tell, so. He's, yeah, until the <laughs> end. Until, until the end. end yeah. But then it's so surprising. And Silent Bob is a great character. Yeah, and that's, is... that's perfect because it is a director, obviously, but yeah. it's just so, such a perfect, almost cameo, but also character kind mm -hmm. of role, which he went on to show up in his other movies, and I think he starts to talk a little bit more, but yeah. in this movie, he's just, like, perfect. Just that guy who's just there, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, and those, I mean, let's talk about those characters just for, like, a, a moment here. Mm -hmm. Jane, Silent Bob. Uh, talk about quintessential 90s slackers yeah. i mean you can't get more you know just hanging out outside a convenience store just like bullshitting mm -hmm. you know hitting on girls it's selling just like, drugs oh selling drugs yeah i mean it's like you know you can't get more of the time it's just like perfect yeah. i think yeah no they're, um, they're just such fun they're not really character. relevant to anything going on but again it's like you said it's just like getting that vibe that you know the vibe of the characters and the the world and what's going yeah. on you just you know they're they're important in that way well and i think um, i do think they are relevant though because at the end they provide the perfect foil to dante you know yeah. it's like there are two people who are just doing their thing you know yeah, it, they it's, are, yeah they're, it, not, it, they're, con 
they're content in their lives. Yeah, like like Randall sure. and those two, you know, they they're people who traditionally we would look at and say like those people must be unhappy because they have nothing going on with their lives, but mm-hmm. ultimately they're kind of the happiest people in the whole film. Like they yeah. play their music, you know, they steal their candy and like that's just life for them and they're cool with it and like Yeah. Dante is so upset with his situation. And I would actually argue that Dante is not a slacker and probably not. No. Like in the film, he's definitely one of the people who is is not like that at all or tries to not be like that. But maybe mm-hmm. in the end, he is. I mean, it kind of comes down to what your definition of a slacker is, which yeah. maybe we'll uh, we'll hint, hint on uh, towards the end. But yeah, I mean, he's he wants to do something. He just doesn't know what it is. He, yeah. he wants to be somewhere where he's not. Well, and I um, think that's why this movie pairs nicely with slacker and maybe not as closely with Up in Smoke. You know, is that I think that in, in Slacker and in this movie, you see people who are trying to do things with their lives. You well, know, they start a punk band and uh, <laughs> up in smoke. That's true. They did start a punk band. They yeah. did start a punk <laughs> they band. Had some dreams. Yeah. But, you know, you're not exactly sure why they started. <laughs> like, like, like what the intention for the hell of it. Is. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of just I, I feel like I feel like the characters in Up in Smoke are kind of more like Jay and Silent Bob and that they're just yeah. trying to keep themselves happy. You know, they're not they're not really stressing the fact that things aren't going anywhere. They're just going to move in with the wind. Um, yeah. But in Slacker and in Clerks, you see people who are really questioning their status mm-hmm. as slackers. Like they yeah. really feel that they have something to offer the world. And they're not la- like, I don't think that Dante is a lazy character either. You know, I, I, I think that he's just someone who has ideas and wants to do things with himself, but just hasn't figured out his avenue yet. You know, he maybe doesn't know exactly what he wants to do. He doesn't really know who he wants to be with. He kind of rejects the good influences in their lot in his life. Because I think, I think that Dante maybe is someone who wants to figure it out for himself and Mm -hmm. kind of pushes people away who would help him figure it out. Mm -hmm. But ultimately all he really needs is a good influence and a little encouragement. Um, And he's, you know, he's a complicated dude, which is so interesting that he, finds himself in the middle of this kind of absurdist comedy with sound effects and, you know, yeah, <laughs> very strange jokes about necrophilia. He's, it's, it's a he's weird... pretty much the straight man in the middle of all this craziness going on. Yeah. In a way. Um, yeah. So that, I mean, I think that's pretty much wraps it up with clerks. Is there anything else you wanted to say about it uh, before we, uh, yeah, no, I mean, like, like we mentioned, this film, you know, is a, is a 90s classic. We, at some point, I'm sure we'll do another 90s film so we can really kind of talk about the cinematic landscape. I know we're running out of time here a little bit, um, but, but definitely, like we mentioned, is the quintessential. Well, actually, for the next movie, uh, Big Lebowski, I really want to focus on the 90s because I think that movie mm-hmm. does it in a certain way. Uh, looking sure. back on it, but also being in the 90s still. So I think it's kind of interesting. True. But um, this movie, Clerks, definitely had a big impact uh, mm-hmm. for many of the indie films that, that were released after this in the 90s. And uh, I just want to reiterate again that it's it's this movie and its budget um, are kind of one thing to me. And the budget is really just impacts what the film is. And I think Kevin Smith was very good with being resourceful and using what he had to his advantage. And uh, it's a scrappy little movie. And that's what I like about it. Mm-hmm. I think when I when I went back to it, just those aspects of it is really what appealed to me the most. Um, but yeah, so we'll uh, go into the 90s a little bit more with our next film. And then we'll finally get out of the 90s after that. But uh, the 90s, you know. The 90s and the word, the term slacker, I think, are kind of, they go together. So it makes sense. Uh, So that's going to do it for today. Join us next time as we take a magic carpet ride to Los Angeles and look at the Coen brothers' take on the slacker as well as the film noir with 1998's The Big Lebowski. Dude. Dude.
the dude abides okay um so that's it thanks for listening to cult movie cult you can find us on itunes podbean and spotify and on social media which we are on twitter instagram and facebook if you have any cult films you'd like to hear us discuss on the show please feel free to reach out to us at cultmoviecult at gmail.com this has been cult movie cult and until next time so long from the other side